Welcome to Turning Point. The rebuilding of Jerusalem required people who were willing to serve wherever they were needed. The church needs that same willingness. Today, Dr. David Jeremiah considers Nehemiah's vision for repopulating Jerusalem, a plan fueled by the commitment of its people. Listen now as David introduces today's inspiring message, Offering Yourself for Service. And thank you for joining us. We are in the book of Nehemiah and the 11th chapter in the midst of a series called 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal. Today, this is the step, offering yourself for service. You know, I have a pastor's perspective on this. I've watched the church for years, and here's what I've learned. When people get involved in serving the Lord, they teach Sunday school, they drive a shuttle bus, they work in the parking lot, they usher, they work in the nursery, wherever they work, wherever they serve, the people who serve are the ones who grow and the ones who are happy. And those who sit back on the sideline and watch it all happen usually get stuck in their walk with the Lord. We're talking about some building blocks for a new and special 2022 for you. And if you aren't serving the Lord right now in your church, you should find whoever it is that recruits people to help and go talk to them. We have a lady in our church who's in charge of servant ministries. She interviews every new person that comes into the church, and she helps them find their place. She's an amazing woman. And uh, when we get to heaven and all of this is added up and put together, she's going to get a huge award for the way she's been able to engage people in the ministry, because once they get in the ministry, they grow and they become mature. Let me encourage you to stay with us as we talk about offering yourself for service. You know that prayer, simply defined as talking to God, like all communication, it is a two-way conversation, listening and speaking. In the 66 books of our Bibles, there are over 650 different recorded prayers. Among them are prayers of penitence, prayers of praise, prayers of petition, prayers of protection, prayers for provision. From the longest prayer, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, to the shortest prayer, Peter's desperate plea, Lord, save me, these prayers for men and women from all walks of life model for us how we should pray. That's why this resource for the month of January is so special. Forty of those prayers in a devotional format in the new book by O.S. Hawkins, The Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. You owe it to yourself to get this book and read it and start putting it into practice. And we'll make sure you get your copy when you send a gift to Turning Point during the month of January. We make no apology for telling you that we need your help. You're the people that make this work. It's your support, your gifts, your stewardship that enables us to be there for you every day with the Word of God and with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so we count on you, and we thank you, and we have no problem asking you, but we also want to make sure you know we appreciate what you do. And uh, our appreciation gift for your investment during the month of January is this beautiful 210-page leather-covered devotional from us Hawkins called The Prayer Code. Ask for this when you send your gift today. And now, Offering Yourself for Service, Part 1. Do you know that history records that in the Church of Jesus Christ, there are seasons of blessing, times of refreshing that come from the Lord? 
I think we'll all admit that there are also in all of our lives and in the corporate life of the Church what we might refer to on occasion as dry times, times when we must walk continually by faith because there doesn't seem to be anything we can see to give evidence that the Lord is at work. Dry times and times of refreshing from the Lord. It seems to me that when we're in those dry and difficult times, the thing which God requires of us more than anything else is that we be faithful just to continue to do what God has called us to do, whether we can see any evidence that He is blessing we just must continue in faithfulness unto Him. But oh, when the times of refreshing come from the Lord and when we begin to see that He has opened up some of the floodgates of blessing upon us, then it is ours to rejoice and to respond in thanksgiving and gratitude and try to extend those times of refreshing for as long as we can, in fact, to have as our goal that there will be nothing in our lives that will short-circuit what God is doing in the open blessing upon us until the day we go home to be with Him. You see, times of refreshing and times of dryness are not always necessarily the direct result of what we do or do not do. There are seasons in the work of God. Times of refreshing from the Lord are to be rejoiced at, and we're to encourage one another with those times, and we're to ride the crest of that wave as far as God will take it. I couldn't help but think as I looked into the book of Nehemiah that there must have been many who, during the days when the city of Jerusalem lay dormant, wondered if God hadn't forgotten them. Do you know that the walls of the city of Jerusalem were broken down for 160 years? The people of God had been in exile. There was no evidence that God had even remembered his city. And then in the providence of time, there were three journeys back to the city of Jerusalem. The first was under a man by the name of Zerubbabel and his friend Jeshua. They went back to the city of Jerusalem, and it was in ruins, and God allowed them to be the instrument whereby the temple was rebuilt in that holy city, the place of God's blessing. And following the visit to Jerusalem, the revisiting of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, there was a second journey back to the city under the leadership of Ezra. And while he was not responsible for building any tangible edifice, God used Ezra to reestablish the Old Testament, the law of Moses, in the place and in the hearts of God's people. And then, of course, came the visit of the man we have come to know and love, the man whose name is Nehemiah. One of the things that intrigues me about this man is that he was not interested in just rebuilding the walls of a city. But Nehemiah had a vision about the importance of the city of Jerusalem, and he knew that that vision could never be realized unless the walls were rebuilt and the city refortified against its enemies. We remember the word that came to Nehemiah concerning the broken-down condition of the walls of the city and how his heart was troubled, how he came before the king of Persia and asked for permission to go back and rebuild the walls. And we watched as he went through the ten steps that caused that facility, that wall project, to become a reality, how he began by praying to God 
how he continued by announcing the goal and visualizing the project and motivating the people, and delegating the work out to those who would help and overcoming the opposition that seemed every time he would get moving in a positive direction, the opposition would come up against him, removing the obstacles of the lack of faith on the part of his people, handling discouragement from the inner turmoil that came when he wanted to build the walls and they weren't being built in the manner that they should be because of inner turmoil among the people. Then he was always challenged to keep people on course because he was constantly being encouraged to go in another direction, to be derailed from his objective. And finally, we saw him as the project was completed and the walls were done. But halfway through the book, we discovered that there was more to the project God entrusted to Nehemiah than simply building a set of walls. For once the walls were built, there were still many problems. God's people, Israel, were now finished with the project, and they rejoiced, but there were still many problems. And we have looked at how God used Nehemiah and Ezra to bring the people back to a spiritual sensitivity so that once the walls were built, the people would be built as well. Back in the seventh chapter of the book of Nehemiah, we learned that there were some major problems that took place. In essence, from the first three or four verses of the seventh chapter of Nehemiah to chapter 11, where we will pitch our tent, there is a great parenthesis. All that goes on between chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, and chapter 11, and the first verse is just a parenthetical discussion. So to get our bearings for chapter 11, let's go back to chapter 7 and read the first three verses. And it came to pass when the wall was built and I had set up the doors and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed that I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah the ruler of the palace charge over Jerusalem for Hananiah was a faithful man and feared God above many. And I said unto them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun be hot. And while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them, and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, every one in his watch, and every one to be over against his house. Now, as you understand those three verses, you need to understand that once the walls were built and the city of Jerusalem was now fortified, strange as it may seem, nobody wanted to live in the city. You see, Nehemiah wanted to increase the population within the walls of the city. He wanted to strengthen the garrison of Jerusalem because the fortress of Jerusalem demanded that there be many who would gather around the walls to protect it from the enemies. But everything indicates that there was much anxiety in the hearts of the people about the defense now of their city, which had been walled. So Nehemiah placed two men at the head of the fortification of the city. First of all, he chose his own brother, Hanani, whose name is mentioned here in the seventh chapter. And then he chose the commandant of the citadel of Jerusalem, a man by the name of Hananiah, who is described here in the seventh chapter as simply a man who was faithful, something that sets him apart from many of the other men that Nehemiah knew. He was exceptionally God-fearing. 
He feared God above many, says the scripture. And that's another point that got Nehemiah's attention. So he put Hanani and Hananiah in charge of fortifying the city of Jerusalem and rebuilding the people within the city. Now, this was not an easy task. The danger of the times to which Nehemiah called Hanani and Hananiah is given to us here in the seventh chapter as we read that the gates were not opened until the sun was hot. That's a very interesting statement because the Levites usually opened the gates of the city at the first break of the dawn. But they were afraid to do that in the city of Jerusalem, and so Nehemiah instructed them that they couldn't open the gates of the city till the sun was full up and all of the darkness was gone, and in the full light of noonday, then the gates would be opened, an indication of the treacherous times in which those people lived. Now, with all that in mind, turn in your Bibles over to the 11th chapter of the book of Nehemiah. And while you're turning there, let me just remind you again that our picture of the city of Jerusalem is probably enlarged in our mind far beyond that which it ought to be. While we were in Europe, we visited a castle up on the hill over Salzburg, Austria. It was probably one of our favorite places, and it reminded me of the stories in the Bible and in medieval literature of the fortified cities. While it seems like a huge fortress, when you actually get in the fortress itself, it could never qualify as a modern city, nor could the city of Jerusalem, which Nehemiah had rebuilt in terms of its walls. Someone has said that the average size of cities in Palestine was six to ten acres, and that the city of Jerusalem covered an area about the size of Central Park in New York City, the entire city. So it was built in a very compact way, basically for the purposes of defense. And as I mentioned, for 160 years, the city of Jerusalem had been an unwalled city. It had just been a dumping ground where people came and put their refuse, and there was no one who really wanted to live there. But now the walls are rebuilt, and it's really important that people move back into the city so that it can be fortified and so that all the goals that Nehemiah had in his original vision for the great city of God would be realized. But we have a sad problem, for we read in chapter 11 that the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Now, there were two things that happened to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. First of all, they instituted a draft, just like the military draft. You see, they had one of the problems then that we have now. Nobody wanted to live in the big city. Everybody wanted to live in suburbia. And notice what it says here. All the people lived out in the parts outside of Jerusalem. They lived where their gardens were, where they were protected, where they weren't as apt to be involved in the kinds of problems that cities have. Nobody wanted to live in Jerusalem. Everybody wanted to live out in the countryside. Nobody wanted to be involved in urban life. Everybody wanted to be involved in suburban life. So Nehemiah got them all together and he said, what we're going to do is draw lots and we're going to draft families to live in the city. And one out of every ten families was selected by means of the lottery, if you will, 
and they were taken back to the city, and one out of ten families was drafted to live within the walls of the city of Jerusalem. That was the first way Nehemiah dealt with it. But the second way he dealt with it was he asked if there were any volunteers. And lo and behold, there were some within the group of the Israelites who had been a part of that project who believed in God's future for the city of Jerusalem to such a degree that they volunteered. And so we read in the second verse that the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So there were two ways people got back there. Some were drafted and some volunteered. Among the nine-tenths who remained outside the wall, some were strangely moved of God. When they saw the draftees moving into the city, some of the 90% who stayed outside the wall said, you know what? We need to go with them. We need to volunteer. And the word volunteer or willingly volunteered is a Hebrew word that means to have something impel you from within you. Inherent in the word is the idea of inner generosity or willingness. In other words, deep down inside some of those people, the volunteers were stirred up and they were impelled by God to move, and so they moved themselves, their families, lock, stock, and barrel back into the city. So we have now living in Jerusalem under Hananiah and Hananiah, a group of people who've been drafted to live there and a group of people who have volunteered to live there. Now, when you take a look at that whole situation, you don't have any trouble in our culture imagining it at all. For instance, these people living in the suburbs were pinpointed by God to move from suburbia into the inner city, and they did it willingly and generously. Had they never volunteered, then the city of Jerusalem would never have prospered as it did, nor could it have ever withheld the enemy attacks that came against it in later years. There were literally some who saw the vision, who realized it was going to be tough, but who nonetheless volunteered to take the assignment to go back and repopulate the city of Jerusalem because they saw the greater good that was involved as opposed to the comfort of living in suburbia. Now, when you read the rest of the chapter, all you're going to see is a long list of names. Every pastor wonders what to do with such a list. And don't look at me that way because when you read the Bible through, you don't know what to do with it either. I don't ever want to pass over anything, but I want you to know I'm not going to give an exposition of all these names. In fact, I'm not even going to read more of them than I have to. But I want you to note that scattered throughout this chapter are some interesting thoughts about the work of God as we approach it even in our day. First of all, if you look down through the chapter, you will discover that there are all kinds of people mentioned here. The variety of people involved in the service of God in the repopulation of the city of Jerusalem is overwhelming. There were provincial chiefs, and there were laity, and there were priests. There were men from the tribe of Benjamin. We're told 928 families of the tribe of Benjamin. There were 468 families from the tribe of Judah. There were leaders and overseers and laborers who were under orders. There were, notice verse 14, mighty men of valor. There were prayer leaders and worship leaders. You just name it, just about everything you can imagine that it takes to make up a community of God's people. If you read the chapter carefully, you will see one or two of these folks mentioned. But what I have done is go through the chapter and recognize that in essence there were five different kinds of groups of people who were mentioned in this chapter. And I just want to point them out to you quickly. And I have chosen a word for each of the groups. 
I'll give you the groups, then we'll go back and get the words, all right? First of all, group number one are those who willingly moved back into the city. We've already talked about them. They're mentioned in the second verse of the 11th chapter. Group number two are those who did the work of the house. Notice verses 10 through 12. Of the priest, Jediah, the son of Jerob, Jachin, Sariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshullam, the son of Zadok, the son of Marioth, the son of Ahitub, was the ruler of the house of God, and their brethren that did the work of the house were 822. Those who did the work of the house, we are told, were counted, and there were 822 who diligently worked within the house within the city. They all had distinct jobs, and they all had something to do, and their number was given to us. The third group is mentioned in verses 15 and 16, and these are those who were in charge of the outside work of the house of God. Notice, also of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashab, the son of Azricam, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Bunai, and Sabethai and Josabad of the chief of the Levites, now watch this, had the oversight of the outward business of the house of God. Now, the best I can understand, the outward business of the house of God had to do with civil affairs, public service, counseling, and that sort of thing, because as you know, this was not a civil and a religious dichotomy, but this was a group of people who functioned under one head. It was all civil and all religious together all in one place. And so the temple had to deal not only with religious matters, but it also had to do with the civil matters as well. So there were a group of people who functioned outside of the house of God to deal with all the civil functions. And then the fourth group, verse 17 mentions, some people who had a very special significant thing to do, and Mataniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, was the principal to begin the thanksgiving in prayer. So there were certain people whose job it was to deal with the matter of gratitude and prayer, people who undergirded the work that was going on with an attitude of prayer. And then the fourth group is mentioned to us in verse 22. The overseer also of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzzi, the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Madaniah, the son of Mekah. Of the sons of Asaph, the singers were over the business of the house of God. Now, five different kinds of things were going on. A diversity of people of all different backgrounds, of all different tribes and genealogies, of all different occupations, but basically there were five or six things that went on among these people that were the jobs which they performed. Now, let's go back and get the words, if we will. First of all, group one, those who willingly moved back into the city, I have written down the word next to them, the word occupation. They were simply to go back and occupy the territory. They were to take up their residence in the city. They were to occupy till I come. They were to be there as God's people in that place. Next to the group that did the work of the house, the 822, I have written down the word dedication. There were some who were known simply by their occupation. There were others who were known by their dedication. They were the ones who did the work. They were the ones who put their hands to the tasks that had to be done. Next to the third group, very interestingly, we read in verses 15 and 16 that there were some who had the oversight over those who did the outside work of the temple. Next to that group, I have written the word delegation. 
It doesn't say that they did the work. It said they had the oversight of the work. So here were some leaders to whom God had given the responsibility of overseers, and they delegated out the civil work that had to be done in order for the community to grow. Well, we're, we're learning a lot from Nehemiah, and we're seeing a pattern here that we can buy into, things we can do. We see what happened when they did it. Now we can find out how we can implement these things in our own lives. Tomorrow we'll finish up what we started today, offering yourself for service. Then on Wednesday, we're going to talk about gratitude. Thursday, we're going to talk about doing away with compromise. And then next Monday, we'll finish up our series from the book of Nehemiah. Still plenty of time for you to get the prayer code, our resource for the month of January. Ask for it when you send your gift today. Thanks for listening. See you next time. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of O.S. Hawkins' latest book, The Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions, available in several durable and stylish cover options. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Turning Point's new 365-day devotional, Every Day with Jesus, is available now. Filled with inspirational readings from Dr. David Jeremiah and paired with Scripture, it will encourage you each day in your walk with God. This popular resource is yours with a gift of any amount in support of this program. And when you give a generous gift of $120 or more, you'll receive four copies so you can share them with others. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. In all we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God. But we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. We are familiar with the teaching from Scripture that everything we have comes from God. But I wonder how often we include in that understanding our good ideas. When we have a good idea, something really creative and helpful, do we give God credit for that idea? After all, 
If everything comes from God, surely that includes our creative abilities as well. Even the Roman orator Seneca observed that the best ideas are common property. That's a non-Christian's way of saying that the best ideas are the result of God's common grace and that he really deserves the credit. Everything, including good ideas, comes from him. This is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's creative gifts on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.